0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Abram Kipalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. I'm here with a person that I admire greatly, Rabbi Meir Schiller, and we are starting here a, a program. Schmoozing with Rabbi Mayor Schiller, but I thought it was important for our audience first of all. Although they might have heard of Rabbi Mayor Schiller, they might have uh, heard about him and his, his role in, in MTA for so many years. They might have heard about his book way back. But I thought that today it might be worthwhile as sort of a sort of our pilot episode to sort of get to know Rabbi Mayor, especially since the biographical details of his life are fascinating, and uh, there's nobody better in filling them in. Uh Mayor, thanks for coming on and and I hope this will be a uh, a fruitful inter- relationship and interaction you know you, you mentioned on one of our programs that we did recently uh, that you've you passed your 70th uh, birthday. Let's take things back even before you were born even we're talking here uh, your your great grandparents and talk about what it is that you believe is still sort of coursing through you their ideals from when they came to America.
1: Well, my grandparents on all sides were here before World War One. They uh, came beginning in the 1880s after the assassination of Alexander II, when many Jews fled Russia in the aftermath of that. And um, I think the last arrived grandparent was uh, of 1911. So we've been here since then. And uh, on one side of my family, they came from Kovna in Lita. On the other side, from Kamenets-Podolsk in the Ukraine, and on one side, my great grandfather arrived here and was still Orthodox. He kept Shabbos and Kashrus, but he would sit at home in his house alone on Shabbos, keeping Shabbos in isolation because his children and grandchildren had already opted out. As so many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews of that generation came to America, and they opted out. So he was very steadfast in that regard. The rest of my family became Brooklyn Jewish of the uh, first half of the 20th century, which was a, a genre all its own. It was fiercely ethnically Jewish, kept some religious practices, was very liberal politically. What that term meant then is worth discussion, but very liberal politically. But they saw themselves completely as Americans. My stepfather took me to Philadelphia to Independence Hall, and my my real father took me to Washington to visit the sites there. And again, I don't know what kind of psychological chicanery I resorted to, but I felt for sure that I was there at Lexington and Concord at Mucker Hill. I mean, there was there was no part of me that didn't feel a part of the American process. And as a, a regular American citizen, all patriotic songs and rituals and myths were all part of who I was. So there was this sense of Jewish identity combined with a very vibrant sense of American identity. So, so your parents gave you a, uh, an understanding of
0: what it meant to be a Jew or what a European Jew was like. Did they tell you about your great-grandfather?
1: Did they tell you about his keeping Shabbos? Or did, this is this something you discovered uh, years later? No, no, they they told me about it. And there was actually uh, another grandparent or great-grandparent who came to America and was so unhappy with the Yiddishkeit situation here, he went back to Europe. But of course they had spoken to me. And again, this is very hard to grasp today, this point in history, where being Jewish mattered a great deal, but practicing it very Rosh Hashanah, M-Kippur, Pesach, Hanukkah, practicing it was not clear, nor was a belief system clear. It was just a fierce, fierce ethnic loyalty with a, a haunting background of some degree of religious apprehension. Most people who have heard
0: your name know that you are a very proud chassid and a spokesman, really, for Hasidic life. Did you ever discover whether uh, your great-grandparents lived in a
1: Hasidic shalifan or not? My, my grandfather, who came from Kamenets Podolsk, was already not religious when he got here. So I don't know where he came from to begin, where his ancestors were. And I don't suspect that the Kovna side of the family had many much considered.
0: Right. I mean, there was a very, it was a bastion of Lithuanian Jewry. Yes. but yes. yes. But, you know, there always some, you know, making some shteeble somewhere, even uh, even in the heart of the Litvak world. You mentioned that you, your parents moved to Brooklyn, just to clarify. Most of the um, I I think most of the immigrants who came started in Manhattan and going to Brooklyn was considered like now moving to Jackson, a big suburb of Lakewood or Manchester. It's like, oh, you're going to Brooklyn because because in Brooklyn, there were wider streets. You were able to have like the semblance of more of a. I wouldn't call it a suburban life but it was more it was more spread out and, and people who 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 try to make their way so precariously through Borough Park and Flatbush today you know who are so frustrated don't realize that this used to be
1: making it right getting to Brooklyn my my grandfather uh, great-grandfather owned a house on Ocean Parkway so uh, that was a that was a big step up to everybody sure
0: you're a person who is uh, not afraid to confront. And actually, not only do you confront, I know you, you draw from it. Can you talk a little bit about what, what caused your parents to break up of what you remember that?
1: Right. My father had a liberal approach to life. And my mother, I think, was a more traditional sort so uh, he he was not necessarily interested in. Uh, he was more libertine, you're saying. Yes, that's you know. correct. That is correct. <laughs> and, 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 and she was she was not. And again, he he told her quite frankly that you know we can both live this way. It's no big deal. And, <laughs> yeah, yes. what's good for what's good for the gander, it could be good for the, good goose. For the goose. yeah, it was fine, but
0: uh, she she didn't want to do that. So, is, do you remember any of this? Because so many people who oh. go through, you know, we have this idea. That It's been emblazoned in us from television and other places that if children who go through a divorce are somewhat scarred and remember
1: that. Do you remember any of that type of discord or difficulty? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. Both my parents played it so positively that um, there is nothing except um, happy feelings. My father had custody of me on Saturdays and one month in the summer, and he was a very entertaining, intellectual, fun guy. And and my mother was a very loving, caring, doting, attention-giving mother. And, uh, you know, you get more grandparents after they remarry. So um, it, it was all bathed in positivity. And it's astonishing. But neither of them breathed anything negative about about the whole experience. So it was just sort of double, double the excitement. I remember at one point I decided I did not want to go to my father for the summer. And it, it just ended i think my grandfather offered me packs and packs of baseball cards to to go for the summer but i uh i declined did your
0: father uh, live in the same uh borough as your mom they both lived in brooklyn
1: no no my father um lived in manhattan and we lived first in brooklyn then in queens and he would come to get me in brooklyn and queens and every saturday was a separate thrill i mean we would go to the manhattan and uh, go to the arcade for an hour and then go to a nice restaurant and go to a movie and go to a bookstore or a toy store. And that was when not during the football season, during football season we went either to West Point for Army football, or we went to uh to Bakerfield for Columbia football or sometimes even out to Jersey to Princeton or Rutgers football. Wow. But- It was very, very full. Uh, My stepfather was more of a pro football fan. So there were weekends when I'd go to the college game with my father on Saturday, go to a Giants game with my stepfather on Sunday. And then if the stars were aligned correctly, my mother might let us go to a Ranger game at the Garden on Sunday (laughs) night. Sunday night.
0: night. Wow. (laughs) Talk about a trifecta. So those were the days, of course, where the New York uh, college teams were actually exciting to watch, especially Army. You know that was something to see the to see the cadets play.
1: Had a great influence on me, West Point. Great influence. Um, the the cadets on dress parade, the cadets in uniform, the the rituals of hierarchy and of respect. Well, West Point was a very formative influence on my life. And even though you were really just going there to, to see the games on Saturday, right. but you had the
0: sense of, I guess, the the sublime understanding of what it meant to have devotion to a greater cause
1: oh yes the patriotism all the statues the history of west point i was into history in general and of course west point um is not far from you know several battle areas and then the songs the cadets all went to all the games all the cadets attended all the games in 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 dress uniform and in uh, the program the program would be full of history of uh of west point and the college and the football team and i might cherish those programs and it wasn't it was just General MacArthur that was shaped by West Point, but I was as well.
0: And you know, of course, many of our listeners who know about you know that of course you you were a coach yourself. Perhaps it isn't just that you saw the positivity of of what it meant how 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 the sports actually helped shape the character of of these players. These these were not just you know showboating guys. This this was these were guys who you knew in a couple of years would be shipped out, you know, to Korea or someplace like that. Vietnam. A lot of the players I saw in the 50s wound up in Vietnam. You mentioned how your family moved, uh, your mom and your stepdad, who it sounds like you got
1: along with pretty famously. My my stepfather, I always talked to my brother about this, my half-brother, and we always say that uh, our stepfather treated us both the same. It was as if I was his flesh and blood. Which had pluses and minuses, but it was all it was all he was trying to be a father as he understood being a father, so there was no sense of me being anything less than my brother We, we were both his children same way and what was the rationale behind the move to queens right that's a that's a fascinating story. They had lined up my stepfather got a job uh, to go to Minnesota. And uh, my father intervened and said that um, he has custody of me and on Saturdays during the summer, so can't go. We went to court, and my father won. So there we were sort of shipwrecked in my grandparents' house with the boxes and suitcases piled up all over the place, and we had to find someplace else to live quickly. And they found an apartment in Queens. So in the middle of kindergarten, we moved from Flatbush to uh, Regal Park, Queens. What was your stepfather's profession that had him moving like that right he was um a manager of clothing factories he he knew how clothes are made and seamstresses and so forth so wherever there was a good job as a manager of clothing factory we went there actually at some point he got a job managing a clothing factory in pine mountain georgia and he would commute every week back and forth because he was valued as a manager of this factory and I, i also went along during the summer to pine mountain georgia where um I met several staunch Goldwater supporters, and uh, there was this guy, Bo Calloway, who was a congressman from Georgia, who uh, I think maybe he served in one of Nixon's cabinets, I don't recall, but uh, he he got me an autographed picture of Goldwater in the early 60s. So
0: I, I know you, you mentioned that it was a, a sort of an accident. You just needed an apartment in Regal right. Park, yeah. but you went to the local public school there, right?
1: Sure. P- PS206.
0: Yeah and that was starting from already first that was like from first grade.
1: Yeah, halfway through kindergarten we made the move.
0: That, that public school experience. Uh you're a teacher now of course, you know you right. teach in in uh, right. in in, in Munkach, and talk a little bit about what it was like to go to public school. I I, I
1: loved it. I loved it. I loved going every day. It was a, it was a largely Jewish public school. I mean, maybe there was a, some scattered Gentiles there, but mostly Jewish. And it was divided uh, homogeneous classes according to academic ability, and and I was in the one class. I'm not, you know, bragging, but I was in the one class there, and uh, it was just wonderful. I mean, the discipline, the work, the standards were were so high, and there was no playing around with grades. You got the grade you deserved, and the homework, the the burden of the homework. And in, in second grade, I had a teacher Miss Calderella. She was very tough. And she hung up on the side of the room a big envelope where you should submit your creative writing, the second grade, your creative writing. And she would give you either a gold star, a silver star, or a check for what you handed in. And it added up to the end of the year, there was going to be a contest who had the most points amassed by this system. And I would get up fatugs and write incessantly both my own fiction and um, historical and political stuff. I remember once I did and a you, old, It was second grade you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, second grade. I, I did a thing on the United Arab Republic because Syria and Egypt had just merged then and created the short-lived UAR, United Arab Republic. And I remember Ms. Calderella gave me a gold star for it, and she said, maybe you should write about fun things like <laughs> circuses and <laughs> rodeos. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And what do you think generated that
0: type of interest? Was it stuff that you were hearing from your stepdad and your mom
1: at home? Both my stepfather and my real father and my mother took my interests seriously. So if I was, I, I had a red-eared turtle as a pet, it was off to the library to take out books on red-eared turtles Whatever interest came up, they nurtured it. They nurtured it. And I, of course, didn't understand. I thought it was just normal. I thought everybody gets that. All three of them in their own way were very nurturing of my interests. So whether it was college football or pro football or the Iliad or the Odyssey or, you know, pet turtles or tropical fish or dogs, everything was a big deal. And my mother would say in her later years when I would buy books – she would often say, "Why can't you go to the library? you have to buy the book. You can't go to the library." So, because you know, <laughs> in her mind, you went to the library. But every one of my interests was was real to them, very much so. It's interesting because you know, there's so many. There's a lot of autodidactic
0: people or people who, you know, we hear about Rav Salvechik and other great uh, you know, spiritual men who you realize that they actually learned most of what they knew not in a box. Little room in school, but based on what they were doing at home, what they were picking up around the house, what they—and you seem to feel that school augmented what yes. it was you were doing.
1: Oh yes, oh yes. When, when in um uh, sixth grade, Mr. Cheryl, or sixth grade teacher, he introduced debates, and I invested I don't know how many hours in making sure my team won those debates. But again, that had to do with the home atmosphere. My father was a very demanding debater. And I remember one particular incident when I was like a budding conservative, like the second half of fifth grade, I became a conservative. I read Goldwater's stuff and started reading Buckley and so forth. And we're driving down some highway in New Jersey somewhere. And I said to him, you know, you do realize that uh, federal aid to agriculture, all those programs are unconstitutional. So he pulls the car over to the side of the road, and he goes, unconstitutional? This is first and foremost a moral issue. The farmers are starving. How dare you speak about legality when there's this moral <laughs> issue? And, you know, so I had, to, you know, I had to be able to come back the next week and be able to, to present this my, my position on this. But, it, but he wasn't, it wasn't nasty. It was just, you know, it was like a chess match. You know, we, we're here. you got to play well. So uh, it, it was a great training in that regard. And, and and did these debates, uh, you think, helped once again
0: shape your political viewpoint? Because we all know that this was a time, of course, of not only the Civil Rights Movement, but also many, many other issues uh, that had to do with the amount of freedom. It was a period, you know, rock and roll, of course, had already entrenched itself. Did any of these debates ever touch on issues of morality, issues of religion, issues of states' rights versus the federal government? Oh, of
1: course, of course. You know, the Civil Rights Movement to James Meredith and you know, Ole Miss and and all of that. But again, I, I still have my autograph book from sixth grade. And how many of the kids there are making fun of, you know, Goldwater or states' rights or Buckley, you know. And um, it, it was a fierce, uh, fierce debating competition. I remember one kid wrote, he wrote in the autograph book, Goldwater is a fink if you like him, you do stink so uh that, that was her autograph grade. You know. so, so we 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 had touched on something here in the middle oh the music yeah the music yeah, was right. uh, was very big sure sure i was very much into the music at that point uh, d- developed a love for the beach boys and uh jan and dean and uh, all the uh, many of the hits of that period Le- Le- leslie gore and um crystals and many of the groups of that time but but I was a historian, so in other words, once I got into this genre of music, so I had to go back to Bill Haley and Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent and Jerry Lee Lewis and all the fifties. That's before my time, really. But I had to go back to them because if I'm doing it, I have to do it.
0: Yeah, well, well, the ones that were great, actually, you know, were able to have some sort of you know longevity, even even into the uh in, even into what we call the the more english band the english invasion era
1: plus of course doo-wop is still around so the simple romantic tunes of uh earth angels still the night and. Um... So on and so forth, so um, you belong to me, so uh, all those... right, which
0: which are really which are really not that much different than the classic American songbook. There's just a little bit of a a different sort of move and a cadence to it it's you know it's, it, it it wasn't the necessarily the the music that was considered the devil's music,
1: no um. What?
0: Look, we all look without without getting too graphic. We all know what rock and roll really means, right? Rock and roll is really uh, it, it connotates uh, sex, which is really what one of the reasons why uh, so many parents were up in arms in it because yes. it seemed it seemed to the the, the rhythms seemed to be so aggressive.
1: It did have a transformative effect on society. I, I do believe that that um, when it became mainstream. Uh, America part of America um I had ended I think when it became mainstream well you put it this
0: way you know what happens when we talk about the sexual or cultural revolution in the 1960s you know, we're saying that, you know, these subjects, these ideas, they are, they're, we're out in front, they're in your face. Yeah. It's got to be rock and roll music, right? If you want to dance mm, with yeah. me, that's what, that's what ends up happening. You can't Earth Angel and, and, you know, Mr. Sandman, you <laughs> uh-huh. know, those, <laughs> those are, those have uh, sort of like uh, flitted away into yeah. some, if not obscurity, but at least flitted away yeah. into just a, a world of nostalgia. Again, I, I have to tell you, you talked about your, your parents. My dad and I uh, didn't have such a relationship where we spoke that much on Shabbos. We learned uh, he was a very untalkative person, but I did watch the news with him every night. You know, the images of how that world was changing and him watching the news. And I don't know if your parents were the same way, but to my father was almost a, a, a religious responsibility to watch the nightly news sitting at my dad's knee watching it and seeing those images of, of of that time i remember you know waiting for the vietnam numbers to show up mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the 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 death toll so mm-hmm. it was a it was and then there's of course what was happening in in the in the united states as well in terms of where the next riot had broken yeah. out
1: we um, we were more news, newspaper people in my family so you know the the the, the times was a, a presence the The post in those days was the 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 epitome of liberalism in those days was the post. The Daily News was the conservative paper. And there were seven or eight daily newspapers in New York City when I was a kid, the Journal American, The Herald Tribune, The World Telegram, and Sun. So that was sort of where I was coming from from the newspaper angle. And you read the newspapers, read the editorials, and uh, that was sort of where we got it from. You know, you, you mentioned how most of the kids were Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there any religious kids that you interacted with at that time? Not one. Not one. There, were, there was one girl in the class. So I remember her, her mother lit candles Friday night. But that was the extent of it. But they all went to Hebrew school. From uh, Most of them went to Regal Park Jewish Center, which was four days a week and Sunday morning. My parents started me off there. But I very soon told my mother, I said, Ma, you got to find me a different place. I can't go every day to Hebrew school. It's just not doable. I want to go out. I want to play. So she found a, a reform uh, school from Congregation Habonim, which was a reform temple, which is once a week. So uh, she signed me up for that.
0: And the idea, of the, the, just to tell our listeners, for many um, Americanish parents, the idea of sending to Hebrew school was I guess there was a certain sense of guilt, but also part of it was you have to be able to have your bar mitzvah, right? You have to be able to uh you have to be able to to say Kaddish, right? I mean
1: right, yeah it was more than that. It was you have to know you're Jewish, you have to know about Jews and Judaism. It was a very strange point in history. I often say, you know, my generation, after my generation, or maybe you, yours as well, well. Who's going to appreciate, you know, a Woody Allen movie or a Philip Roth novel, right? Because mm-hmm. they, that was they were geared to that point in history of being in but not being in. Yeah, you know, I was in Congregation Habonim Hebrew School. And two stories about that time. One, the teacher said to us, we were doing the Pasha of Shema, and we did the pasuk Shatim Leres Yadaha. And she said to us, Yeladim, do you know there are people that interpret this literally and tie leather straps around their arms and heads? And none of us had ever heard of such a thing. We'd never seen such a thing. It had not occurred to us. The other also a story, which typifies that time, is that the principal came in one day and he denounced the Christmas decorations in the streets and he said, you know, these Gentiles with their garbage hanging out in the streets, you know. And my, my mother would have none of that. And I told her this story, and she called the rabbi of the congregation to complain. And the guy came in the next week, oh, I didn't mean this, I didn't mean that. But my mother would not tolerate describing, you know, Christmas decorations as uh, as garbage. I mean, I, I, I watched Amal and the Night Visitors on Christmas Eve, so... Uh, there, to, to me, there, the Christianity was not a bad thing. Was there a, was there a Christmas celebration in, in, in the school? No, no Christmas celebration. We sang at assembly, which was once a week on Friday. We would sing seasonal songs. Or it was Hanukkah or Christmas or Easter. We sang seasonal songs, but we prayed every day. We had school prayer. This is before the you know the two Warren Court decisions. We had school prayer and Bible reading. So uh the, the assistant principal got up at assembly and read to us from the Bible. Now, in deference to the fact we were like an eighty percent Jewish school, she read from the Old Testament. But that was very much a part of the whole thing, was the prayer and the Bible reading still existed. We know that you were in Rockland County, and we
0: and and, and you've written about how you, you came to orthodoxy, but let, let's go over a little bit of those of those facts. First of all, what was the reason to move once again from uh Rego Park? up to rockland county why did that happen
1: i think you had to i think it was some sort of obligation that when one had the ability to buy a house you simply could not stay in an apartment you had to buy a house i think it was an obligation of the times mm-hmm. and it was the prohibitive to actually
0: buy a full house in regal park
1: yeah uh, there weren't so many it, 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 regal park was mostly a neighborhood of apartment houses almost uniformly. So, you,
0: so, your, so your stepdad and mother really looked far. I mean, they went about, you know, almost 30 miles
1: yeah. north. That's true. That is true. I just want to make one point, if I we can retreat here for one moment, because this is going to be important to the, the, the saga of the orthodoxy. I, I have to bring out the fact that I think I was very much influenced by the the Westerns of the 1950s. And I think that they gave me a teaching in terms of the westerns that you watched on television yes correct correct yes which sometimes expanded into movies they did the lone ranger as a movie actually two movies but i you know i don't don't think i would have gotten to where i got to in my life without the teachings of the lone ranger or davy crocker or the rifleman or or any of those wide erp any of the 50s heroes the, the cartwrights bonanza i think they all had a tremendous effect on on shaping me in terms of the the, the seriousness and and the standards of, of that life must have. So I just got to, to, we're doing a biography here. I have to give thanks. It's interesting.
0: You know, you mentioned, of course, a little hodgepodge of, of, of movies and television. They might all draw somewhat from the same fountain, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is that the idea of the, the Western hero who tames the environment, who restores, like, you know, the riflemen who actually... An interesting, you know, Chuck Connors' his role there—he he actually isn't the the the, the sheriff. No. The sheriff is this milk toast fellow, <laughs> basic—he basically could do nothing. Um, right, and here's you know the the rifleman is the rancher, but he's the guy who has to take care of everything. So yeah. you know the actual law enforcement, the guy who's getting paid by the government to do his job, yeah. he, he always depends on the rifleman to somehow uh, defend himself. So yes, there is an idea of of of, of taming, but it also comes not from the authority. It's almost like the the tough, independent oh, uh, sure. uh, person who somehow.
1: The gun is who's a, who could really be a gunslinger if he wanted to. Important to uh, say this, that very few of them were part of official authority. Uh, the more we think about it, almost none of them were, were wielding a uh, Davy Crockett, Lone Ranger. And none of them were wielding a right. paladin. None of them are wielding wielding official authority. So, again, it's, it's very American-esque in that way that it was was outside the normative channels of authority. And there was another important character, which I would say you had in Paladin, and you had in uh, uh, Jim Bowie, and you had in Yancy Derringer, and you had Maverick. These were characters who were tzaddikim nistarim. In other words, their overt lifestyle was not particularly pious or righteous, but they they were all um, people who, um, when called upon, they became these these great Sadiqim sacrificing their lives so I, I think you know as i mentioned those four are in that genre of people who did not have that not only were not part of official authority but were also in their own yeah they, they, they,
0: yeah well look you know the maverick brothers were basically you know uh Ganov in many ways well, they well,
1: were, they were, let's call them card sharks
0: yeah they were card sharks so right. basically yeah. they right. they're clearly rascals and yes. as you say I think part of it was the the fact that the sponsors of these programs didn't want to align themselves with uh, with people who just take the money and run who have no nobility you know I, I'm glad that you were able to take a great uh, you know moral lesson from it but part of it was just the reality I think of of what television had to be there was there was the self-censorship
1: I I, I learned shot that these were Lomas
0: I think we we all have a fascination with the independent person who is able to draw his sense of morality from from his own life.
1: Well again I again we got to do David Crockett a little more. Okay. I cannot underestimate to you the effect that that first you know three TV shows and then a movie. And this is where you know having divorced parents comes in handy cuz you got so many parents and so many grandparents lying around. I don't know how many times I, I, w- I went to see that movie. I mean, dozens. I mean, I know whole scenes and dialogue. And We've talked about this, and I sent you, of course, our,
0: our discussion that we had about uh, the star uh, mm-hmm. and, and how that program got put together. We talked about it uh, off pod. But Disney, you know, on his uh, – uh, what was allocated to him on ABC and then NBC, he just – you know, those programs – he kept on recycling them, and of course they, they were released in the theaters. But you're saying the 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 hero Davy Crockett, he was your hero.
1: Oh, and and the Shamus and, and Georgie Russell and Buddy Epson. Yes. that it didn't have to be the tzaddik himself; it could be the gaba also.
0: Yeah,
1: yes. and it had a tremendous influence upon me. And of course, in the in the end, they're all killed; they all give up their lives when when Colonel Travis was the lieutenant or Colonel I forget, when he draws the line in the sand. You know, you can all get away now if you want to. That's right. But that's right. you know, if you want to stay, you know, and they will cross over. But so that that's a tremendous scene. Georgie e. Russell comes back, and and Davy Crockett says, "You fool! You were safe. Why did you come back?" And he says, "I reckon I was lonely." <laughs> In other words, you, you're going to go into this mysterious message, like I'm not going to miss this. We we're going to we're going to go down together here. Go down together, and and Thimble You know, Hans Conried that was who was a. A, a, a you know, a, a card shock and he becomes sort of Yesh Bashar, Achas under Davy's tutelage. He crosses the line to stay with them and, and he dies with them in the Alamo as well. Now, will an interesting point on this, which again, you, you won't hear this, I guess, too many other places. When they gave out the Nigan as a 45, and there were many versions, there was David, the Fess Parker version and many other versions, but they changed the final stanza. It was considered to be too powerful, I think, to be a popular thing with kids. And the final stanza, which only is sung in the movie, it appears on none of the records. It goes, I think, the the storybooks say they were all cut low, but the truth of it is this just ain't so. Their story will will live and their legends grow as long as we remember the Alamo. And again, the fact they're all cut low, the explicitness of being all cut low they changed it on all the records. They changed it. I mean something, this land is biggest and this land is best. And there was some noddish kite. But the original stands In other words,
0: cut, cut low sounds like the Indians slaughtered them, cut their bodies in half.
1: Yeah, it was all just too much for little kids. The story said all oh, cut low, you know, and but the truth is not so. And then of course they show the flag, the flag of the Republic of Texas is the final thing you see on the screen there. Mm-hmm. But so again, for to me, the the idea of monsieur Snafesh and sacrifice and loyalty and brotherhood and and Georgie coming back, Georgie coming back is uh, is is a famous scene.
0: Let me just ask you one thing, as, as as we end, you know, one of the things that I grew up with was hearing about the years of 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 anger and a sense of betrayal that the Brooklynites had about the Dodgers leaving, and generally New York about the Giants leaving. Did you ever sense any of that? I mean, obviously wow. the the National League, you know, gave them the Mets, and of course, uh, originally five years later,
1: fifty seven to sixty two. There's nothing. This was like a like an incredible betrayal of of
0: of the number one city in in, in America.
1: Two things. Number one, uh, the Dodgers losing to the Giants in the fifty one playoff game when um, Bobby Thompson hits the home run of Ralph Branca. That was in my family, I think, the greatest Jewish tragedy we knew of. We didn't know about Tisha B'av, but we knew somehow the Brooklyn Dodgers were somehow Jewish yeah. <laughs> mythologically in our minds. And this tragic thing, and my stepfather would always say Ralph Branca could never pitch again after that, which was an exaggeration, but it fit with the mythology. And that moment, that day, my mother talks about I was in the crib, and she heard the game on the radio. Rabban Lichtenstein talks about running home. It was Tom Gaddali running home and being being crushed by that by that Bobby Thompson home runs. And then when they left in '57, it, it was I can't begin to tell you how devastating it was to so many. Now I had already decided in like '53 '54 I was going to be a Phillies fan, so I I was not really part of this Avelis. But I think to my parents, it, it something died, something very deep died when. When the Dodgers left and Ebbets Field was torn down. And uh, and of course, you know, I, I think, you know,
0: the, you know, the Yankees fans were always had the hubris of saying, OK, yeah, nothing can touch us. You know, California or anything, we're still going to be the greatest.
1: I still harbor that deep hatred, which all my parents had for the Yankees. I mean, I'll, I'll be in a car somewhere and they'll tell the scores. I don't follow it very much anymore. But if I hear the Yankees lost, a little bit of a simpher there, a little bit of a the hated Yankees. I, I, I'm telling you the story here that I would always ask my parents to take me to a Yankee game when they were playing the Washington Senators or the Kansas City Athletics. Why? What's the score? Huh? If the Yankees win, Malcol Rush right? It's expected, right? But if I can see the two worst teams in the American League beat the Yankees, ugh, it'll last my whole lifetime.
0: I <laughs> All right. Well, I think as you said, you've given us a a, a tremendous runway on which all of these elements can take off and be shaped in a very powerful and fascinating way. So that's, you know, I'll be in Eretz Yisrael next week. We'll try to arrange something and we'll hear the second part of the story and hopefully full of surprises as well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.